In this episode of the Chillinois Podcast, I sit down with Dana Larson. Dana is a Canadian author, businessman, philanthropist, and activist for cannabis and drug policy reform. Dana runs cannabis and psilocybin dispensaries in Canada. He recently opened a coca leaf cafe, which is the only location in North America that sells coca leaf over the counter. In addition to the coca leaf, he carries other herbs like peyote, kratom, and other entheogen-themed items. In today's episode, we talk about the criminalization of drugs, and we talk about how Dana got to where he is today, and what his next steps in the drug policy arena involve opium. Enjoy the episode. All right, Dana, welcome to the Chillinois podcast. How high are you? I mean, hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. It's a bit of a gray day here in Vancouver, but uh, I'm having a nice day and I don't have to work today. So we got lots of time to talk about all kinds of things. Yeah, and we've got the cannabis rolling, so you know it's about to be a good conversation. For folks that don't know you, uh, can you do your best to just give a little introduction for yourself? Who, who are you, Dana? Well, I live in Vancouver, Canada, and I've been involved in cannabis and drug policy activism pretty much my whole adult life since I started as a, as a teenager. Uh, I've started a lot of different projects in this regard. I uh, helped found uh, one of the first uh, seed banks in Vancouver for cannabis seeds. I was editor of a magazine called Cannabis Culture for 10 years. I opened uh, Vancouver's third cannabis dispensary uh, and helped to push cannabis dispensaries forward in Vancouver and across Canada. I've run for the leadership of a party called the NDP. It's our left-wing party here in Canada, and I was, am still very involved and ran for the leadership of that party in British Columbia a few years ago. I started a campaign in BC called Sensible BC to collect signatures, to try to get a referendum for legalization. And now that cannabis is legal in Canada, although there's still lots of flaws we can talk about, I've opened up uh, one of the very first mushroom dispensaries in Canada, in Vancouver. and. Actually, our shop is the only place in the world that you can come in and not only access uh, medicinal magic mushrooms, but we also sell uh, coca leaf and coca leaf tea and coca plants. We sell peyote plants. We sell kratom, something we might want to talk about later, uh, and uh, and all kinds of other things like that, all in one spot. Nobody's really doing that. And um, I also write books. I wrote a funny book called Harry Pothead and the Marijuana Stone. I've written a few other little sort of funny stories like that in the novels. And, and, and illustrated books and things. And there's probably other things. Oh, I run a program called Get Your Drugs Tested. And that's a free community service where anybody can come in eight hours a day, seven days a week and bring in any little sample of any kind of street drug or anything really. And we can analyze it in five, 10 minutes and let you know what's in it. And we just hit a milestone with 25,000 samples that we've analyzed now over the last uh, two and a half years. And uh, that's really something I'm very proud of. So I do all kinds of different things like that. My life's work is to end the war on drugs, starting with cannabis and psychedelics, but ultimately getting rid of prohibition in its entirety. And it's been pretty successful. It takes a long time. You know, it's been 30 years I've been working on this stuff. And and, uh, we've made a lot of progress, but we still have a lot of work to do. But that's a little bit about me. If you didn't know, you can watch our podcast now on YouTube. We'll paste the link to today's episode in the show notes. Thanks, Dana. 
Thanks. I wanted to thank you for sitting down with me today uh, to speak about drug policy reform and your efforts in that arena. As you just described, your uh, your rap sheet is long in the best sort of way, um, both probably in your charges, but also your accomplishments. <laughs> because I've only been charged once. I spent one night in jail and those charges were eventually dropped. The court didn't really took me to court. The judge dismissed it all. That was for giving away 10 million cannabis seeds or right. Which I also did a few years ago, traveled across Canada, giving away seeds. And that wasn't so bad, but no, I haven't really, I've been pretty careful and also very lucky in how I do things. But although I very openly and transparently break all kinds of cannabis and drug laws all the time, I've only ever been charged uh, with that once. And that was for a little handful of, of cannabis seeds that I had. And I spent one night in jail and that's, uh, that's it. Yeah. And like you say, you kind of openly um, um, do what you believe in. Um, if I were to describe you, it'd be a cannabis advocate, activist, author, politician and master of civil disobedience. You're really you're really good at it. Can you explain to people maybe for a moment what is civil disobedience and why is it uh, especially helpful in reform in like the policy reform arena? You know, I'm, I'm in the right city in the right country as well to to do this kind of work. Uh, I think it will be a lot harder to do what I do in other cities or definitely in many other countries. So I'm in the right place and the right time to sort of push these things and take advantage. And a lot of the civil disobedience I do is, is sort of business related, like starting a business that 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 breaks the law but provides people these products because at its heart, the war on drugs is about keeping people away from accessing these different substances. So opening a seed bank that sells cannabis seeds or opening a, a medicinal cannabis dispensary that, that sells cannabis itself, or now the other things that I'm selling and doing, it's a way of generating revenue and providing people the products that they need and really defying the war on drugs and defying prohibition. And I think it's important to, to bring in revenue because, you know, when I first started being an activist, like 30 years ago, everybody who's a weed activist was broke and they would have a regular job and put all of their money into trying to change things. If you can create a business or some kind of self-sustaining thing that not only in itself is, is challenging the law and, and bringing things forward, but also that generates a profit that you can then use to subsidize other kinds of activism that isn't inherently profitable or doesn't bring in revenue. That's a very powerful combination and, uh, and has been really effective. And, and so that's kind of the kind of things I do. We do other kinds of civil disobedience. We, we were before COVID, we were putting on a giant rally in Vancouver, a 420 protest that would proceed every year. City refused to give us a permit, but we would do it anyways. And the last one we had in 20. Uh, uh, 8, 2019, 2019, right before COVID was coming on, was uh, we had Cypress Hill come. We had 200,000 people there. It was a giant uh, free festival with hundreds of booths selling, openly selling cannabis to people. Really, at that event, actually, there's more cannabis for sale available per square foot than anywhere else on earth ever. Like there's, you know, even in the heart of Amsterdam or some other event, there's never 300 booths all selling marijuana all right next to each other. So that's also quite an accomplishment we're very proud of. But uh, but yeah, most of my civil disobedience is more about about starting businesses and projects that 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 can both be profitable and challenge the law. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really successful technique and one that I encourage people to spread and share. But you've got to be in the right jurisdiction. And Vancouver is a city, I think, that is unique in some ways. 
and that is more tolerant of these things. And although our police weren't always like this, and they used to be a lot more aggressive towards drug users and, uh, and that, uh, you know, a few decades ago, they've really... I mean, I got a lot of problems with the Vancouver police, don't get me wrong, but in terms of enforcement and arresting drug users and going after things like that, they, they listened to the people of the city and the people of our city did not want them to come raiding cannabis dispensaries. They did not want them to come after that. Most people in Vancouver, I think, want legal drugs and they want a safe supply. And, uh, and so that allows me to sort of wedge into that area and push things forward in a way that I think has strong community support. And, you know, the politicians won't do it for us, but they won't necessarily stand in the way. If you just do it, you'll, you'll find that a lot of the resistance kind of melts away or that it's not really there. And people uh, want you to be successful and want these things to succeed, even if they can't always talk about it openly. So at least that's the situation here. And I think it's been very useful. And I said, I've kind of made a career out of it. So you sort of get more confident at this as you go along, you know, yeah. and as you see what you can accomplish. You realize, Oh, I could actually do a lot more. Yeah. Well, cheers to that. Um, I, you know, I, I have to say that the, w one of the things you just said is a epiphany that was, or a lesson rather, that was just recently taught to me by a good friend. Um, folks on the show know him as Michael Malcolm. Um, he told me, you know, Cole, you can't fight this fight broke. Cause we were talking about, you know, doing ads or whatever for the podcast and how can we continue, you know, to, to be the voice that we are. And one of the things that he keyed on keyed in on is that we haven't been asking people for money. We haven't been, you know, doing anything where people could even give us money if they wanted to. And I was like, I just don't want to be that person that's like kind of on the corner with a can asking, you know, for money, help support. He's like, but at a certain a certain point, you can't keep fighting this fight if you just give. you know what I mean? It's kind of like what you were just saying. Money is crucial. There's, there's a lot, not everything costs money, but money is a crucial aspect of activism. And if you can find a, a millionaire or a billionaire out there who, who believes in this and wants to fund you, and there are groups like that and there are foundations and people that put in money like that. But when you create a business and it's hard, I mean, I, you know, if you, I'm sure if you try to open a mushroom dispensary or a, a weed shop in, in your town, you might have a lot of challenges there. Right. And it might be a lot harder, but, but, but if you can find, and it can open bong shops and things, you know, when we started this in Canada, bongs were illegal in Canada. You couldn't get a pipe or a vaporizer or a, any of that stuff. That was all illegal too. And the, the, the people opening those kind of shops in the early days, that was really, yeah. kind of activism, <laughs> you know, just making those things available. But, uh, but yeah, money is, is so important to have or to, as, as a tool towards activism. And if you can, like, there's many people out there, obviously, who support what you're doing, who want to see this change, who want to help. And just being able to cover their costs a little bit or giving them an opportunity to donate to you. You know, I understand the reluctance in asking people for money. And it costs a lot to afford licensing fees and distribution fees to push our content and equipment to capture our content. So if you're able, please consider contributing to the Chillinois podcast at chillinois.net slash support. You can contribute any amount. So please, if you're able, contribute a dollar or two to the Chillinois podcast. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So I more like to ask people to do stuff to give me sure. their time or to I give them a product that they want and they can pay me for that. And then I can use the profits for that. So 
It, it's very true though. Money is really key and crucial to any kind of activism. Uh, you know, being able to put the word out, being able to pay people to do things, or just being able to like cover people's needs while they're out there fighting the fight, right? And, and, and doing this kind of work. Right. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that you had said in the past that I really keyed in on. It's not only for yourself to, to stay active, but also so that maybe you could even, you know, give other people those funds so that you have more resources to achieve your goal. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's lots of people that would, I think that want to do more, but they just have a regular day job and a life and it's hard right. to, to do all those things together. But if your day job is intrinsically involved in activism in some way, uh, then that that becomes a very powerful combination. People are always willing to work harder and to put more in if they believe in what they're doing and if it's part of their effort, uh, but they still got to have their bills covered and their, their needs met. And so it can be challenging sometimes, but finding a way to make your activism profitable uh, is, is a, set, a very powerful combination and something I really encourage people to think about uh, when they're trying to, trying to do this kind of work and there's something they believe in and they want to make change. You know, it's, it's not always intuitive and it's not always easy, right? To figure that out, that you know, selling t-shirts or something, well, that's all right. But since selling cannabis to people, especially when you're one of the very first shops that's doing it, you've got a huge market. And to treat that as a responsibility and not, you know, the, it's interesting in Vancouver because we had, a, we had a few cannabis dispensaries open and those were the people that were really activists and who were, you know, taking a risk and doing because they believed in it. And then as we had more and more, you saw a different kind of dispensary operator open who they might believe in marijuana, but they're not really looking at it as a risk or an activism. They're saying, hey, I can make some money operating this business mm -hmm. and I can, you know, provide cannabis to people. And the risk is kind of low because those guys have been doing it for a few years and they're not getting busted. And then at one point, there was over a hundred cannabis dispensaries operating in Vancouver pre-legalization, all of them unlicensed. And the police were like, when we raid a place, it costs $30,000. And then they open again the next day and the court, nobody wants to prosecute them and the courts don't care. So we're not going to raid them anymore because it, nobody wants us to, and it's a big hassle. And so the city used other means to shut places down and, and tried when legalization came, they started using fines and, and, and other tactics and threatening landlords and things. Now there's quite the fair, a much smaller number, but there's a fair amount of legal shops in the city, but the few unlicensed ones still operating are all the ones that were the very first ones in. So the real activist type people like me and a few others that really got into it, they're still out there providing medicinal cannabis and challenging the system. But that big middle ground of people that came in to make some money, they either went legit or they got out of it after they'd made all their stacks of cash. And so uh, that's, it's sort of an interesting thing how you get different generations of people. And what you really want is running a cannabis shop or a mushroom shop. It shouldn't be an activist act because it should just be a normal thing. Right. But I feel that as long as people are going to prison for this, and as long as there's people being punished for this, that if you're profiting from it, you have a moral obligation just to keep fighting and to at least put some of your funds and effort into these kind of battles. But, you know, you definitely see the newer generation of people that come in do not see it as activism. They see it as just a regular business and a way to make money. And that's a good transition. But I think some of them are making it a little bit too early because we've still got a battle going on and it's it shouldn't be just about cashing in. It should be about uh, about making sure that this is open for everybody and about you know, having a fair and just world, you know, so. Yeah. That's how I see it anyways. Um, I want to wrap back around to that topic because it definitely like 
I, I have a lot to speak with you about with regard to how big money can get involved with politics. Cause what we just talked about was like how somebody like you and I can try to start, you know, uh, crowdsourcing, if you will, to, to push for a, you know, a grassroots campaign. But what we've started to see is people try to cash their chips in and not necessarily be on the same page as you and I. Uh, and I'm not going to say that I started the movement. I was probably negative uh, 12 when you when you started the movement. I can't remember when you started. I was looking, uh, but I, you know, somebody like you, they're not on the same page as, as somebody like you or, or folks that pioneered this movement. But like I say, I want to wrap back around to that idea of um, those people cashing in and, you know, should the market be open for everybody? Uh, before we talk about different topics like that, I just wanted to, um, if if you could tell us, just so that you know people that don't know you can get that abbreviated catch up. Tell us how you got to where you are today. You said you you know you opened the third dispensary in Vancouver. Now you've got the first mushroom dispensary. I presume you're one of the uh, first persons to put your name like all you know uh, associated with that and coca tea and kratom or kratom uh, however it's pronounced um tell us how you got to where you are today well you know i, I i'm 50 now and when i was uh, like in high school like in grade 11 12 i started smoking cannabis i read a incredible book called the emperor wears no clothes by a guy named jack herrera who's maybe not that well known now but he was a real pioneer in the u.s and this book really was the first kind of widespread document that talked about and explained the values of hemp and what hemp was. And this was before people knew what CBD was or hemp paper or any of that kind of thing. And a lot of the history had been lost. And that book inspired me to, to want to get involved in this. And I started meeting other like-minded people uh, when I went to university. I started writing letters to politicians in Canada, asking them about the war on drugs. Like I'm like 18, 19, and I would keep their answers in a, in a binder that I put together. And uh, it became important to me. And I, I started a club on campus uh, called the League for Ethical Action on Drugs. That's a lead. We would have meetings and we'd get high together and have pizza parties and bring speakers in to talk about things. And, uh, you know, after I, I graduated, uh, from university, I met a guy named Mark Emery, who was a very influential activist in, in Canada. He had just come to Vancouver and he started a shop called Hemp BC. I started working for him on this magazine that started off called Cannabis Canada and then became Cannabis Culture and really became a international magazine, did that for 10 years. And so I, I was lucky that I was able to get a job early on as an activist and doing this kind of work and getting paid to, to do these things and working on the magazine. And then I did a lot of other stuff just for free because I, I believed in it. Uh, and so I, I was inspired by that. We accomplished a lot of good things. And when I left the magazine, I decided I should follow that same kind of path and start businesses and, and find ways. Mark had pioneered bong shops in Canada and was getting arrested in Vancouver for selling bongs and pipes and getting raided by the police. And really helped break one of the very first kind of above ground open bong sellers in Canada. Uh, he went on to cannabis seeds, ended up doing four years in an American prison for selling cannabis seeds all around the world. Uh, but I saw that activism and I saw the, that starting a business and doing that was a very powerful thing. So when he couldn't sell seeds anymore, I started selling seeds. And then I, 
I saw there had been a, a marijuana dispensary in Vancouver for 10 years. There had just been one. And I thought, well, if they can do it, why isn't there 50? There should be a lot more by now. So I opened one and I really just followed their model. I knew the folks who'd opened it, but I, the thing I did differently was I was very public and open about it and they weren't hiding, but they didn't seek media. They just were doing it quietly and they'd started off in a more hostile environment. And I just really pushed things harder and was able to get a lot of attention and inspire a lot of others. And so this is sort of the path that I've been on where, you know, I, I stumbled upon this and realized this was an important issue as a much younger person. And I was lucky enough to meet other activists, to be in the right place in the right time with the right generation in the 90s when this was just kind of starting to build up. I mean, there's always been marijuana and cannabis and drug policy activists ever since the war on drugs started. But in terms of it being a movement and people really getting into it, that really started happening in the 90s. And uh, and so it just carried me through. And I, I, I can see, well, I was able to do this with with cannabis dispensary. It's a very similar model to do this with mushrooms. And now seems to be the time for mushrooms. And people are talking about them a lot. And really, they are where cannabis was in the 90s, where it's just starting to break through public awareness. Microdosing, I, to me, is very similar to CBD in terms of being kind of the non-psychoactive, but still beneficial, more publicly acceptable. A lot of people take CBD who might benefit from taking THC, but don't want to get high. A lot of people will microdose who might get a benefit from a bigger psychedelic dose, but really just don't want to do that or, or want to find you know, microdosing works for them. And so I'm just sort of following or variations on a theme now, you know, that I started off seeing how this works with cannabis and now following that into other areas and with coca leaf also. And I will say that even though my work for the first couple of decades was really heavily focused on cannabis, for me, it's always been about more than just marijuana. It's really about the whole war on drugs. And I really see it as a war on plants and a war on what are really the world's most medicinally valuable, culturally relevant uh, plants out there. Coca leaf, opium poppies, psychedelic mushrooms, peyote cactus, cannabis, all these things at their root. I mean, it's hard to look at fentanyl and realize that kind of is a plant behind all that originally. You know, I know fentanyl synthetic, but it's from the opiates from from poppies originally, you know, and that that I, I think, uh, you know, everything should be legal. But I really think going back to the nat more natural forms is more beneficial or healthier and better for people. And that prohibition really eliminates those forms. It's much easier to get cocaine than it is to get coca leaf. And that is wrong, obviously. And so so anyways, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but this is the path that I've been on. And it's, it's sort of an epiphany I had as a younger person. And I, I think it's been great. I, I feel I've accomplished a lot. I've helped to make a lot of things happen. I've also learned what works and what doesn't work. And I've wasted a lot of time on activism that I don't really think accomplished anything. But what civil disobedience and that kind of change really does make difference it's, it's the most effective kind of thing and so now I'm, I'm at a point where i feel very confident in it i'm kind of well known in vancouver i wouldn't say everybody knows who i am but there's definitely people are aware of what i do i have supporters and i, I have people who and so i have sort of a i'm in the right place at the right time like i think i was the perfect person to open a mushroom dispensary and to break that open and now there's four or five in the city and they're following my example. And I, I'm very happy about that. You know, it's more competition for me, but I don't care. I just want there to be lots of access and lots of places open. And uh, yeah, I, I've got a good team with me. You know, some of my, the woman who runs my cannabis dispensary and really runs our get your drugs tested program. 
she's really doing most of the work. I founded it and kind of got it going, but I have a great team with me that really is, is builds on things and lets me focus on, on spearheading and being the icebreaker and talking in the media and being out there and a great crew that really runs things and keeps these businesses and projects going and who believe in me and I believe in them and we really do great work together. So that's how I got to where I am now. Hell yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, you, you definitely answered my question. And, um, one of the things that you've said in the past that I feel like goes in line with everything that you just said was that prohibitionists aren't trying to ban something that's harmful for you. They're trying to ban something that makes you feel a certain way. Absolutely. Absolutely. The vast, like pretty much no substance that's been banned was ever like, oh, well, let's do a scientific study and this is more harmful. So we should ban that. That never happened ever. Right. I mean, nobody did that when cannabis or opiates or cocaine or coca leaf or any of these things. When it's more that it becomes popular, it becomes popular. Oh, we got to ban. Oh, LSD is becoming popular. Well, we got to ban it. Oh, MDMA is becoming popular. It's really more about that and about which which group is using it and about culture wars. And if the people using that drug are protesting your government and have different political beliefs, then there's a motivation to go after those people and going after people for drug stuff is a lot easier than going after them because you don't like saying you don't like their politics or the color of their skin or other things like that. You know, Nixon didn't start the war on drugs, but he really reinvigorated it and expanded it. And it was very clear that was a political motivation, not about anybody's health. And really the health concerns about drugs, although there's definitely a difference by class, a lot of it has more to do with the potency and the dosage and the form you're taking it in than the substance itself. So, you know, some things can cause more harm in stronger dosages, but even with cannabis, there's a difference between having a few puffs off a joint and eating 10 grams of shatter or whatever. Neither one's going to kill you, but they're going to have very different effects. There's a difference with coca between chewing coca leaf and drinking coca tea and injecting pure cocaine or something. And they're, they're, it's all a continuum, but there's a, the, the harm and the risk and the addictiveness and the, the physical aspect. It's not about the substance. Drinking some opium tea or smoking some opium there are some risks involved with that, but they're very different risks than injecting fentanyl or, or using pure heroin. And so there's the same thing there. And I don't think either thing should really be banned, but they should be controlled and regulated in different ways. And, you know, drinking beer is different than injecting pure alcohol or drinking pure alcohol. And you can inject alcohol. It's a very efficient way of getting drunk. And if alcohol was a thousand, five thousand dollars per bottle or whatever, people would inject alcohol. Some small people would minority of the population would do that because that would be the only way to afford what they wanted. And so that would be an example of prohibition, pushing people towards the more hard and challenging form. And so it's really about, it's not about the, 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 the substance. It's about the form and the potency and the purity and how you're ingesting it. And prohibition consistently pushes people and pushes the market towards the most concentrated forms taken in the most dangerous ways, because those are the ways that are the easiest to avoid the police and to avoid avoid punishment. So I'm the only guy really trying to smuggle coca leaves around for my coca cafe. I tell you, if I had a cocaine cafe, it'd be much easier to get the cocaine that I wanted for my place than it is to get whole coca leaves. And that, of course, is ridiculous that the harder, more dangerous form is way more available. 
I don't think cocaine should be banned, but I think that in a world where all options were available, snorting cocaine would be about as common as snorting caffeine is. And you can buy pure caffeine and some people do right. snort caffeine. You go on Reddit, Google, you know, snorting caffeine. There's a minority of people that are really into that, but it's a tiny percentage of people. And the vast majority of, of caffeine users prefer to take it in a drink, maybe in a capsule. If they really want a big caffeine dose, you can get that, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. You know, most people just drink lots of coffee or take energy drinks. And if we had legal cocaine in all its form, I believe the vast majority of people who were taking cocaine would be taking it in the form of a drink or a chewing gum or things like that. And that the use of it in other, or, or using milder products like coca leaf and things like that. And I think legalization tends to lead towards that. The biggest expansion of use and product in after marijuana was legalized is CBD. It's the most popular thing. The, the biggest growth as psychedelics move towards legalization, the biggest change, the biggest, more popular thing isn't taking so many psychedelics that the world's melting. It's taking microdoses and people tend towards that, those forms. Right. And so and with alcohol, people, some people don't generally drink pure alcohol. They either drink beer or wine, or sometimes they love stronger drinks, but nobody's, and you can get pure, pure alcohol. If you want, you can buy, I don't know what you call it there. We call it Everclear. Everclear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can buy Everclear at the liquor store, but, and nobody really does. Who wants no, that? Right? You might, I use that to clean my bong. And so there's a natural point where people tend towards certain potencies that they enjoy more, that are more reasonable and safer. And people naturally tend towards those and prohibition pushes people away. It's called the iron law of prohibition. You probably heard that phrase. The iron law of prohibition is that prohibition always makes any banned drug stronger, more potent, more concentrated and more harmful. And, wow. uh, so that's, I kind of forget where I was going with that, but that's, that's what happens. And I think legalization causes the reverse of that. The opposite people say, well, you know what, you want to legalize meth? I said, well, yeah, I think method, methamphetamine should be legal, but I think amphetamines in multiple forms should be illegal. And people are going to tend towards the milder forms uh, if given that option. And they should be available in different ways and restricted in different ways. Uh, but, but nothing should be like prohibited and you put in jail if you have it or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, very well said, man. And, uh, you know, not to get too caught in the hypothetical argument that you just that you just uh, brought up, but like the people that are like, oh, you want meth legal? It's like you have to I've had to have the conversation with people. It's like it is legal. Have you ever had Adderall? <laughs> like, yes, it is. Yeah. You know, opiates are legal. You know, yeah, well, we've got tighter also, control. It's also a prohibitionist thing to sort of point like what I said when they say you want to make meth illegal. I go, OK, well, hang on a second. Does that mean? That aside from meth, you want LSD, mushrooms, cannabis, all these things legal. And that's the only one that you don't want to legally go. No, no, no. And I go, well, then why, why do we start, why jump to why that? Yeah. start on a different point and say, well, why? Because, it, you know, it, 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 they, they'll bring up the strongest, most risky or the one that's got the most stigma around it and the most concern around it. Well, they want that. And so they try to put you on the defensive. And I try to challenge that and say, well, Okay, maybe meth, maybe we can talk about that, but let's look at all the other substances that are clearly less risky, harmful to health, and talk about those first. And let's agree, well, mushrooms and those, that's not addictive, it's not harmful, nobody dies, should that be legal? And if they can't agree on that, then, then obviously they're not going to agree on meth. But if you can get them to start chipping away at things and being, well, okay, some drugs should be legal. And maybe some people say, well, maybe meth, but what about like amphetamines in a lower dose? What about a drink that instead of caffeine has a small amount of amphetamine? Should that be allowed? And kind of, kind of chip away at this thing of prohibition. And you've only got a few things left 
at the end. And then you go, well, okay, how do we deal with those things that maybe are more risky or more dangerous or more harmful? But, you know, you can buy rat poison and inject it into your body. And that is not against the law. And that's, of course, is extremely harmful to do. But it's not a crime to buy rat poison. It's not a crime to drink it or eat it or to do all kinds of things. They put a warning on it saying, hey, don't eat this. But it's not a crime to break that warning. And so it's a weird thing where certain things that you might want to do that are less harmful, that's not allowed because we don't like it. But there's no, I can drink turpentine if I choose to. It's not a crime. We don't criminalize it. We had strongly advise against it. But we, but if I want to smoke a joint in some areas or take a mushroom, that's illegal. But it's clearly, you know, it's not about harm to people. It's about stopping them from doing something that they want to do because you don't want them to do it really at its core. That is much more what it's about, you know, than, than prohibiting harmful things because all kinds of harmful things are allowed. And it would make no sense to criminalize hurting yourself if you choose to do that or, or you know, that's, it shouldn't be a crime. So, so you need to look at it that way too. You want to yeah. legalize rat poison? Well, it's already legal. So why can't I take meth if I'm allowed to inject rat poison? How does that make any sense? So there's lots of ways to approach the, these arguments, but really to me, it's about it, even if a substance is really harmful, how do you reduce the harm around that substance? How do you make it safer for people? How do you reduce the harm to societies and everybody about taking that? And it's never banning it. You know, it's always trying to find a safer alternative or trying to find a milder dose or trying to find a better way of taking it or, you know, but putting people in jail never is never the solution. Yeah. And frankly, I mean, you know, people that want more things to point towards as to why you shouldn't do X, Y, or Z drug might, I know that they're going to, I'm going to lose them here. If anybody that actually believes that is listening right now, but if, I mean, you would have more data to work with if drugs were legalized because you could be like, look, you want to see how bad meth is like here, here, you know what I mean? But currently you're kind of working with flimsy data because you've criminalized it. And you know what I mean? Do, do you get, uh, the, you, real, the real data, I think, would point to the most part that things are less harmful than we've been told that although there are risks involved, those those risks mostly come from prohibition itself. I mean, at our drug testing lab, we find all kinds of weird things. We find a lot of clean drugs that are as advertised. We also find a lot that aren't. And just knowing the dosage and potency and having a label on it that tells you what it is and mm -hmm. how to use it more safely 90% of the harm from most drugs is eliminated just by that. And, uh, and everything has a risk and a problem. And people say, well, alcohol causes all these problems. And it's like, yeah, it, you know, alcohol use does lead to a lot of problems. First of all, we should have other alternatives to alcohol available, but it's the only recreational kind of drug available. It's going to lead to more problems, but also how do we reduce those problems when we banned it? Where was everything safer and better? No, people were, right. now people might die from alcohol use after uh, several decades of drinking. When they're old, they might get an ailment related to alcohol use. People don't drink a drink and then collapse on the ground and die like they are right now with opiates and like they used to during alcohol prohibition. And so it's all causes mm -hmm. harm, but killing someone at when they're very old or when they're older and they have a health concern, it's still a problem and something we should try to eliminate. But that's different than instantly killing you because it's got poison in it and you die often at a very young age instantly. I mean, that's just two very, very different situations. Right. And uh, 
And so, you know, we need to look at these things properly and to understand that, you know, prohibition always is not the solution. And having safer alternatives, people often would not choose to use things if other forms were available and, and, and alternatives were available. That to me is really how we have to go. And sometimes, I mean, I think everything should be legal, but sometimes problematic substance use or people who have addiction issues or who are, have challenges in themselves, psychedelics and things like that can often help people to, to make better decisions and often can help people to not become drug dependent or to change their relationship to a substance by taking psychedelics and realizing, oh, there's a, a reason I do this kind of obsessive compulsive behavior, or maybe you have epiphanies about your childhood or about others that you can forgive yourself or find. But I mean, I, I don't think that, oh, we give people say, oh, we give everyone a lot of mushrooms and no one will take opiates anymore. And we'll and like, no, I do not believe that. But I do believe that that for many people, problematic relationships with substances can be changed and fixed and, 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 and with themselves can be definitely healed through appropriate use of psychedelics. And for some people, cannabis can be a substitute for opiates sometimes, especially really strong edibles. The, the, the pain relieving effects of cannabis are very different than opiates. And I, I don't think every opiate user could just start smoking weed and they'll be fine. But there are programs in our city run by other activists that give people strong edibles. And I think really strong edibles can, for some opiate people, help them reduce opiate use or eliminate it sometimes mm -hmm. and get the effects they need from that. So, you know, having but that's impossible to figure this stuff out when it's all illegal and prohibited, when it's all treated exactly the same. And so some banned drugs can help people. And there's studies showing that people who, who use a lot of cocaine and who have troubles with their cocaine use can substitute chewing coca leaf. And sometimes that can help them not use cocaine anymore. And they're getting the same kind of substance, but in a very different form, in a healthier version, in a milder form, but it can still, you know, give them what they need. And so, yeah, all these alternatives need to be available. Yeah. And I guess my, la my last thought also, like if this, if this thought triggers anything, don't, I'm not saying we're done with this topic, but uh, I thought there was a lot of validity to what you said when they're, uh, with the focus behind prohibition being criminalizing ideas, like how do you do that? Well, you make it like you can't criminalize ideas or, you know, uh, no longer is it acceptable, right, to criminalize like the color of somebody's skin or anything else like that. But the way around that is to criminalize maybe something they might be in possession of. And like you say, that war, it like evolves quickly into you possessing more and more concentrated amounts because frankly, it's easier to, to transport and everything else. Um, I just think it's interesting that like part of, so I think, first of all, that was a very valid like thought. It's interesting that we've criminalized compounds. I mean, they're compounds that interact with your consciousness. That's when it comes down to it. That's all that drugs are. Right. And so we've, we've criminalized these compounds, the possession of these compounds and, and in doing so, we've taken away tools out of our tool belt. Like this is the way that I look at drugs. Like and another valid point you made is that some of these drugs, AKA tools in this analogy help you so that you don't have to use the other tools, right? So that you're not as dependent on the other tools. I think it's just, it's interesting that we've taken away what should be, you know, part of our tool belt. No, you don't take, um, uh, morphine every day. Um, but it should be available in Sears catalogs <laughs> so that if you need morphine, if you've recently broken your leg, I don't know, just you name it, you need intent, you need pain relief, right? It should be a tool 
it's at your disposal. Um, and, and the same goes with any of these other scenarios that you just brought up. You know, if you have dependence on opioids, mushrooms, or high dose cannabis edibles, these are tools that can help you not to rely on this other tool anymore. Like it's, it's just mind boggling to me that, that we don't view it that way. Like uh, the last thought I'll have is that I went to like a civil, it wasn't even, I said civil war. Cause I just go, I think of that when I think of like old timey stuff, but it's this guy, like we were in a forest preserve. I was really high. So this is why that some of the details are a little vague. And we come up on this log cabin and it's this guy and he's like impersonating an old time, like medicine keeper. And like, he's in character and he shows us like all the, the herbs and medicines that he have. And I had, and of course I have to be the person like, do you have uh, any cannabis, you know, at your disposal? And he was like, well, he's like, they might, he was actually pretty cool. They might've had that back in the day, you know, and we kind of got into a conversation about what drugs might he have had, you know, and it's just weird to think about a time like that where it was just basic, you know, they were, they were tools at your disposal. And now we've convoluted it to you're a bad person or you're going to go like crazy, like all these different nightmare scenarios instead of it just being like, and look, to wrap up my tools analogy, I could shoot myself in the hand with a fucking nail gun, but we agree that we don't do that. I could hit people in the head with a hammer, you know, do anything with, with actual tools. We agree though, that we don't do that to people. Right. So like, it's like the idea that you use the tools for their intended purpose responsibly. So I know well, I went a lot a, all over the place. There's but. a surprising number of people who support everyone have, having access to the tool of deadly weapons, but do not support those people having access to cannabis or psychedelics or other drugs and stuff. And, yeah. you know, there, and, and I mean, I don't want to get into a different debate about, about guns and stuff, but it is, it is, Interesting to me that clearly I think the risk to yourself and to your neighbors is greater having a weapon than having cannabis. And if you're going to support like the thing that can actually is designed to harm things and to, to cause damage, but not the thing that people just enjoy to relax and really is very difficult to cause harm with then you're not really being consistent in your, in your beliefs. Right. And that's uh, you know, so it's interesting how people categorize things and aren't really consistent in what they want others to be allowed to do and what others should not be allowed to do. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of it's more just about culture and about the other and about wanting to punish people that are different and not so much really about the pretext of, oh, no, it's for your health. It's really about we're trying to keep you safe from harming yourself. Right. Like, no, that is not really what it's about at all. Yeah. Well, we might we might get back to the subject of all drugs, but I want to hear in a moment. I'm going to switch to cannabis, one of my favorite articles that you've ever written. But to, to wrap up, I guess, the subject just for now. Um, and if it comes up again, you know, we can get back into it, but you mentioned your, um, I thought this was topical. You mentioned your, uh, the place that tests drugs. So like, how does, how does the process work? Do you just like you, Dana, you just sit at a table and they give you the drugs and you're like, yeah, dude, this is good shit. You can have it. I'm just joking. Uh, well, how does yeah, it, how does I, it actually work? <laughs> I don't really, I mean, I found it, but I don't do the testing myself. Right. I just, yeah, I was just trying to be funny. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Well, I mean, and it is, you know, I, I, uh, I just had this idea, like we, this is something we could do. And I originally kind of thought of it as being a much smaller project than it's, it's grown into this huge thing. We're the busiest uh, analysis lab in the world now. Uh, but basically there's, there's different ways of analyzing these substances, but we have what's called a FTIR, uh, spectrometer, it stands for Fourier Transform Infrared. 
And so the Fourier transform is like the mathematical process. And it basically about the size of a bread box. And then you put a little, you know, 0.01 gram sample down there, very small amount, and it shines an infrared laser on it. Then it analyzes the light spectrum that comes out and it matches that spectrum against this massive database that it's got of all different drugs and substances. And actually these machines were not originally designed for drug analysis. They were more designed for soil samples and chemical analysis and things like that. But they very, work very well for this. And I think now they're probably selling them more of them to like drug activists and these kind of programs than to anybody else. And so uh, we, they cost about $45,000 Canadian to buy one of these things. So they're not cheap. But once you have it, it doesn't cost anything to run the tests on it. There's more expensive kind of spectrometers that like chromatography that uh, actually it costs more. They do give more accurate results, but they also cost like $20 to run a test. You've got to be a lot more sophisticated to run one of these machines. It does take some training, but anybody can do it after a couple of weeks of training. It doesn't require like a special degree or any kind of special knowledge. You just need to, to work it for a few weeks and shadow somebody, then you can do it yourself. And so we bought one of these and I was going to set it up originally in a different spot, but we used to have two cannabis dispensaries and one of them got shut down by the city after 10 years, they got an injunction against us and a few others, we had to close it. So we converted it from our dispensary into our get your drugs tested center. And, um, and so we started off pretty slow, but we, people started hearing about us. We also offered mail order as well. So we're the only place where people can mail in a sample from anywhere in Canada, anywhere in the world, really. We don't, like if it, if it makes it to our mailbox, we'll analyze it. All we need is a sample and an email address to send the results to. And we do get some international ones. I don't want someone to get in trouble in their own country for sending us something, but you know, I wouldn't, if you're going to send us a sample from another country, don't go to the local post office, just put a fake return address on it, put it in the mailbox in your town and it'll probably get to us fine. And we just need the tiniest little bit, right? So you don't got to be sending us big batches of whatever tiny little, little period size, like a little dot sized amount is all you really need. But, um, but it's grown and um, we've now got three of these machines operating and we've actually got a truck that we've bought that we're converting to make a mobile lab so that we can start going, you know, it hasn't been a lot of music festivals the last couple of years, but that should be starting up again. And so being able to go to music festivals, being able to tour around our province or around Canada to go to different cities and towns and do things like that, that's going to be the next big part of what we do. And, um, but I am really proud of this program. It's really been, successful. We've done over 25,000 tests. We're doing about 40 tests a day. And, you know, in Canada, there is government programs that do the same thing that we're doing, but they're just so underfunded and so lackadaisical about how they do it. So like in my province of British Columbia, which is pretty progressive on drug policy, not compared to where I want us to be, but compared to a lot of other areas, you know, we're, we're pretty progressive. The province owns like 13 or 14 of these machines. So we have two operating, they have six times as many, but they'll have it. Okay. Well, it's at the injection site on Wednesdays from one o'clock to three o'clock. And we have another one in Victoria where if you drop off a sample, we'll give you a result back every Tuesday, we send the results out. So you can't have to wait up to a week to get your results. And they don't really use them properly. Whereas we're like eight days, a, seven days a week, eight hours a day, eight days a week, if we could, but, uh, but yeah, seven hours, uh, seven days a week, eight hours a day, we're open doing this. And, um, 
And I think we just said we're in the right spot. We have a better reputation and people really want to come to us. So, so uh, I wrote an article actually recently going over our results and showing the different things. And, you know, we see a lot of different stuff and it, it's about saving lives and stopping overdoses definitely. But it's also sometimes just about preventing a bad drug experience that might not kill you, but is not, going to be necessarily pleasant either. That's one of the things I wrote. This is a little bit older. This is after our, our 10,000 uh, mm. samples, which was January last year. And, um, you know, sometimes it's about people getting a drug that's just, they think they're getting MDMA, but they're really getting MDA, which are kind of similar, but also very different substances as well. Or, you know, one time the person thought they were getting MDMA or ecstasy, but they really got methamphetamine combined with Viagra, which is sort of trying to represent replicate the sensuality and energy of, uh, of MDMA, but really not what you're looking for, obviously a different yeah. combination. And so, and so those kind of things I think are just as important as, as for partly, you know, it's important too to find that kind of stuff out as well as to find out, Oh, Hey, there's fentanyl in your substance, which maybe you didn't want to be there, or maybe you are looking to get fentanyl or you, and, and you could find out how, how, what the percentage is in there. You know, we can't give an exact, mm-hmm percentage we can give it, we I was going to ask about that for like the safety so there's, of about, there's about a 5% threshold if something is present under 5% it's very hard for that us to pick it up and so theoretically if something has got like four different things in it that are all at like 2% we wouldn't pick any of them up so we, we supplement the FTIR with test strips as well, because fentanyl can be in a sample at a level we can't pick up, but is still potentially harmful. So we use test strips for fentanyl and for benzodiazepines, we have a few other test strips for LSD. We also use a test strip because LSD is also it's there, but it's in such a tiny quantity. Our machine can't really pick up LSD in a sample unless it's like pure, a drop of pure LSD or something. Our, our machine can't really pick it up. So there are limitations and there are, if we give a potency, it's kind of a range, but it still gives you a guideline as to what you're taking. Uh, and you, it, it definitely helps a lot. I think it's good enough for the purposes that we're doing. So the gas chromatography, if you really want to get really accurate results, but that costs a lot more. It's not, it takes a lot more time. <coughs> not really as accessible. It would, we'd have to charge people to do the tests, right? We don't charge anybody. We appreciate donations and we get the odd donation, but it doesn't, we don't, you know, it costs us about uh, after buying the machine and everything else, it costs about five to $7 to sort of pay that person their hourly wage to do those tests. Right. So it, uh, it does cost, but, uh, but yeah, we using the, the grass chromatography is just too much, but, but I, I think our results are, are definitely good enough for the vast majority of people coming to us. If we get a sample that's kind of weird or we really want to dial it in more, we do have the ability to send the odd sample in to get tested with the provincial healthcare. And so we do that once in a while, but that'll take a long time to get the results back. Not so useful for that user always, but does help us to keep track of what's out there and and, and in a broader sense. So it's something I really wish was all around the world. And it's something that you can do without... I mean, we're in a province here in British Columbia that claims to support safe supply, and they're kind of asking the federal government for permission to decriminalize drug users. And But this is something they can do if they really want it very easily. For me, it's a huge investment. We've spent, you know, half a million dollars on this project, which 
for me is a lot of money, but for the government, it's a drop in the bucket and they could do what we're doing in a much bigger way for a few million dollars a year. And it bothers me that they have all these machines and just don't use them really to their capacity uh, because the machine is the big investment. But anyways, I'm very proud of this program, what we do, hoping to take it on the road this year and, and go to some festivals and travel across the country. But I don't do the testing myself. We got a much more talented group of people that do all that. These days, I'm just the spokesperson and advocate for it. I don't, you know, I go by there and I help out and stuff, but I'm not, I'm not involved in the testing and we got a good team doing it all, which is great because I got a lot of other projects I'm working on too. So. Yeah. Uh, one last question. Um, just cause it, you made me think of it, you know, you talked about the small sample size and stuff, and I've seen similar outfits at festivals, similar, uh, you like to you test your drugs here type of, uh, things going on. Right. And I love seeing that because from what I've, from what I've heard, the data shows that it key, it does keep people safe, um, to know, you know, that, that what they are consuming is what they think it is. I did want to ask though, like, and I'm just uh, like, it's just always been my question whenever I see those things, like, because I've like, I've seen people go through the process and they get that small amount. Part of the problem with prohibition is that the people making these drugs sometimes are just not professionals. You know what I mean? And so it's like this, it's whatever it may be. And it's not consistent is my point. You know, like you test Advil and it's fucking Advil all the way through or whatever, from what I understand, you know, it's consistent is what I'm trying to say. But with, you know, maybe you take a little chunk out of your MDMA, it may not be consistent. The whole, your little batch no, you're um, absolutely right. You're, and that is a concern. And there are a bunch of caveats that go along with our testing, right? So we don't just uh, give the results. We try to give them information about what the results mean and caveats around it, because you're right. You could have a pill that maybe part of it's got something in it and the other part doesn't. And we have to test the part that doesn't. And so it doesn't always get everything that's in there. Most stuff's pretty well blended, but absolutely there could be a different, a difference in the consistency. If you're concerned about that, you could bring us two or three bits from the same pill, which can help people do that sometimes, but, but you're right. It's not a hundred percent accurate. There are caveats. There are still risks involved. We still encourage people to start low and go slow and to be aware. And we can't guarantee stuff. There are still risks involved. It's impossible to test the whole substance uh, in that way. Uh, So, you know, it's not perfect. There are risks. And we try to make our our clients aware of those things. If you go to our website, there's a big paragraph at the top explaining all the way that that 5% ratio too, that 5% threshold could also be an issue that something is in there. You know, we try to use the test strips. We do the best we can. I think our results are, are in the vast majority of cases. I think our results are trustworthy and accurate, but there are still risks. There are challenges and we, we, we do our best to make people aware of that. Ultimately, these things should be getting tested when they're getting made and having labels on them that are accurate and like anything else. And so we shouldn't be needed. I would love nothing more than to shut down our program because we are no longer needed because right. users have their drugs tested when they're being made. But we're a long way from that. So we do the best we can, but it's not perfect. And there is still definitely risks involved with taking street drugs, uh, even after they've been tested, but 
it definitely also reduces that risk, I think, quite substantially, but we don't get it down to zero. And you've still got to be careful, even when we have tested stuff. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so, folks, if you want to read more about that, uh, if you didn't see, uh, by the way, folks, if, if you didn't hear it at the beginning of the episode, we are doing video podcasts now. So if you want to see it on YouTube or uh, the WeTube, whatever platform we're on it, um, go to chillinois.net slash YouTube. Uh, so, but anyways, it's getyourdrugstested.com if you want to read more about uh, that process and, and everything else. But and we, and we, put all, we put all of our test results on our websites. So we have 25,000 results. We try to take photos of most samples as well. And we have, a, oh, I'm just getting a call. Let me just decline that. Sorry about that. And no uh, we, we, we have a, a gallery of LSD blotter. We have a gal gallery of pills. And we have a really great search engine that we've just upgraded our search engine. So you can really dial in and search for, you want to see all the cocaine that had uh, uh, fentanyl in it, or you want to see cocaine that had levamisole, or you want to see whatever. All these kind of things are available in our search engine. So it's a really lot of fun going in there and, and checking things out. Uh, I'm just telling my friend not to call me here. I'm working. I'm on a call. <laughs> no problem. Okay, right on there. Uh, otherwise, they'll keep calling. But uh, okay. but yeah. So the search engine. I really enjoy like just getting lost in our search engine and going through things and looking at samples and seeing how really different things can look. There's something called down, which most people aren't really aware of. But street terms for there's you buy up and down, especially in Vancouver. But I don't think we're the only city. And up used to be more cocaine. Now it's more amphetamines and methamphetamine. Down used to be the heroin. Now it's kind of fentanyl and caffeine. Sometimes also benzos in there. Uh, hmm. but, but they often people, they often put food coloring or change the color so that, you know, as a branding thing, right. I got the light blue one and that's the good one. The last batch, but then someone else is like, well, the light blue's doing good. So I'm going to make mine light blue to try to look like their one. So I can, but some of them are really quite beautiful. These samples of these drugs, you know, this, the way they look when you get close ups of shots of them. And it's just kind of fun seeing what's out there and also quite, you know, horrifying sometimes to see what's out there, but there's a lot of really, we get a lot of samples in that are really quite pure and quite good. And we definitely get some that are not what the person was looking for. And that could be quite harmful. We had one guy come in who was convinced and we showed him the fentanyl had the sample on fentanyl in it. He thought he was trying to be murdered. And, you know, if you control someone's drug supply and you want to kill them by putting fentanyl in their drugs, no one is going to question that. No one is going to investigate another person who died of an overdose because they're just going to assume it was the drug supply. And although most of these aren't purposeful, there are definitely people who have been murdered by somebody putting something in their drug supply and that will never get caught because no one is going to investigate it. So some of these, you know, I, I don't think a majority, definitely most are accidental or, or other things, but no one is, is going to question that another person dying of an overdose. No, you know, nobody's going to investigate. So there's a lot of interesting things that we find and, uh, and results that we get. So it's a really fascinating look anyways, get your tested.com. It's really, it's really interesting to go through there. So I think I may have told this, I told you this before we hopped on air, but, uh, the way I came across you, Dana was, um, I saw a Twitter thread on the myth of increased potency in cannabis and it turned into an article on cracked.com. We'll put it in the show notes for folks that want to read it, but tell us about the, uh, the myth of increased cannabis potency because uh, frankly, it continues to be used as a talking point 
by and from prohibitionists and uh, politicians that, that continue to enable the war on drugs. And, and I just want you to take that, that, that on. <laughs> cannabis is so much more potent now. Yeah, cannabis is so much more potent now than it used to be. And you hear this all the time. And I've been hearing this since I started being aware of this kind of stuff in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. They were saying cannabis is way more potent than it used to be. And we just had uh, the U.S. Surgeon General a couple of years ago was saying marijuana is three times stronger than it was in the 90s. And while the perceived harm of marijuana is decreasing, the scary truth is that the actual potential for harm is increasing. Not enough people know that today's marijuana is far more potent than in days past. The amount of THC, the component responsible for euphoria and intoxication, but also for most of marijuana's documented harms, has increased three to five fold over the last few decades. Or as I like to say, this ain't your mother's marijuana. So I started thinking, well, like how long has this been going on and how much stronger would cannabis be now? So, I mean, in the 90s, they were saying now it's three times stronger than the 90s. You go back to the 90s and actually Joe Biden was the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee in 1996. And he was saying marijuana is so strong now, it's like comparing buckshot and a shotgun shell to a laser guided missile. And uh, the U.S. drug czar was saying in the 90s, marijuana is 40 times stronger than it was 10 to 20 years ago. So you think, oh, well, the weed in the 80s must have been pretty weak then. But in the 80s, they were telling people that marijuana is seven times stronger than it was uh, 10 years ago. And that's from like a study from the 80s. So you go back to the 70s and you go, well, they must have been pretty weak weed then. Well, in the 70s, you got media saying that marijuana is 15 to 20 times stronger than it was in the 60s. So then you go back to the 60s and they're talking about new, more potent strains of marijuana being smuggled into the U.S., so then you go back to the 40s and in the 1940s, 1947, there's media talking about the Mexican crop of stronger marijuana weeds that's so much stronger than it used to be. So then you go back to the 30s. What were they saying about marijuana in the 30s? Well, in the 30s, they were saying that marijuana drives you insane, that you become a murderer, that smoking marijuana causes all kinds of crazy stuff to happen. And if you add up all those numbers, it's if you multiply all those different factors together, you get 67,200, like 40 times doubling, times three times stronger, times nine times stronger. It's obviously ridiculous. And and uh, and then if you go, so then they're saying in the 30s, it drives you insane. And if you go back further, we've got people, you know, from 2000 years ago who were using cannabis. So what were they, why would anyone want to use something if it didn't have any effect? It, it doesn't make any sense. Right. And I think that and in fact, if you also look back historically, people were typically getting way higher off cannabis than they are now. In the 1800s, the, the, hash, the hashish club in France, they were eating psychedelic doses of cannabis and going to crystal palaces in the sky and having elaborate <laughs> hallucinations and experiences that you don't get from smoking cannabis. Right. And people eating cannabis to really get really high these days is pretty rare. Like the vast majority of cannabis users do not like eating really hallucinogenic doses of cannabis. I don't, I smoke weed all the time. I don't enjoy eating huge amounts. I might eat a little bit to relax or feel good, but I'm always careful. And if I eat too much, I get uncomfortable and I'm a the most chronic person there could be. Right. So 
so it, it, it's it's just a ridiculous thing. But it was a lot of fun putting that together and and finding all these references and showing that this this myth of the cannabis is stronger now. Well, the stuff that you used that was okay, but the stuff your kids are using now, oh no! And that's just a way of because people who have used cannabis go, well, it's not that bad, and. Maybe I don't want my kids smoking weed nonstop every day, but I smoked a lot of weed when I was younger and I was just fine. So maybe that's okay. And they want to be like, no, 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 it's different now than it used to be. You were fine. The Woodstock weed, that was nothing. And it's like, so the weed, they were all writing songs about. And when you banned it, it didn't do anything when you banned it. And now it's stronger. Even if that was true, that would be a huge failure of prohibition. It was harmless and didn't do any effect when we banned it. And now after it's been prohibited for 50 years, now it's stronger than ever and more dangerous than ever. Well, then what did you really accomplish? Like maybe it was better before you banned it. Right. So this is an argument that fails in every respect, but is just not based in reality. And I've been smoking pot since the late eighties and I don't think it's any stronger now. I think it's maybe easier to find good quality cannabis in some ways, but and I talk to people who are cannabis experts and breeders and people like the guy who created the blueberry strain, a guy named DJ short, or they just call him blueberry Dan. In my opinion, one of the greatest cannabis breeders ever. And he told me the weed in the sixties and the seventies was awesome. And that there was more variation and more different kinds because it's become more homogenized now. And I think, well, you know, there was a time when there was way more kinds of lettuce and way more kinds of tomatoes. And now we've only got three kinds of lettuce, you know, and things homogenized. And I think with cannabis, it's gone the same way. When I was in Jamaica, it's quite a few years ago, but nobody was growing Jamaican local strains because they take all year to grow and they grow huge huge and they're a heat score. The Jamaicans I met who were growing cannabis were importing seeds from Europe and growing Dutch strains that grow real small. They can get three crops a year They're you know, and so we see a homogenization of cannabis, but is cannabis stronger now? People getting higher now when they smoke a joint? No, maybe they don't got to clean out all those seeds anymore. And that was part of the, the, the story is that when they test cannabis, they don't clean it all off before they analyze it. So if they've got a sample that they seize that's full of seeds and leaves like they used to be, they'll toss all of that in the bin. And of course, the average THC level will be lower when a lot of the weight is seeds. But the user is going to take those seeds and stock out of it. And what the user, the user experience from a seeded bud and from a perfectly, a perfectly grown sensimia bud they're both going to get just as high, but the one is going to get better value for their money because they're not going to have to throw away a bunch of seeds. So by weight, the one bud is more potent. But in terms of user effect, you're going to get just as high from either one. And, you know, people show these old pictures from high times of like the best weed of the 70s and it all looks awful, right? There's all tons of... But I tell you, I would smoke that stuff and I would love it because when you clean off that leaf and when you get the seeds and stock out of there, that is going to be some really quality bud. Uh, even though it might look kind of wispy and look like it's not the big fat nugs that we're used to with, you know, really dense. And I'm sure that, you know, per plant, you're getting more yield with a modern bud. But in terms of getting high in the experience and how much THC you're getting in your body, those old school buds were just great. You just had to be patient and get the seeds and the stock and the leaf out of there and get the what you want. And now we don't have those things anymore. So, you know, the quality in some ways per by gram is improved, but the, but the, the, the effect and what the user gets, it is not very different at all. It hasn't changed over the years at all. 
Yeah. And you made a lot of strong points in your follow-up. I think we, it's, we could address all of them, but one that I think is super important, Dana, THC level does not equate to potency. So for example, let me just put it this way. This is the way I put it to people that don't understand it. Okay. Because they just don't get it. So they, they equate it to alcohol and that's, that's the way the lens they're looking at it through, but it's not, you can't compare it that way. And let me just, this is how I explain it. So 82, I could take a dab of 82% shatter, for example, and I could take a few of them. I could take like three, four, maybe five, and then go and function like I'm on Adderall. Like it's like ping, 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 ping. I'm fun. I'm firing on all cylinders. Like things are working out just fine. I can smoke a 18% flower and it'll turn my world upside down. And, and it, it, that confuses people because they're like, wait a minute, you function better on the 82% than the, the 18%. Why does the 18% make you so much higher? Why does it turn your, you know, your world upside down? And my thing is that even to this day, we don't understand or test for all of the cannabinoids that are present within cannabis. And Dana, like what you were saying earlier, talking about the, 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 the weed that we no longer have where you'd have to like pick it apart and everything else. Like, I think part of what maybe made that good and um, makes some cannabis good is the presence of other cannabinoids. Again, THC level doesn't equate to potency. I just want to hear some of your thoughts on that. You're absolutely correct about that. And, and THC isn't just THC. It comes in all kinds of different forms, right? And one very clear example is most of us are familiar with Delta 9 THC. And that's the form that people tend to want to produce a lot of in their plant. It's the only thing it was the first cannabinoid identified. So growers would try to get as much of that in there as possible and get a high test result because that's all the only thing you're looking for. But when you eat cannabis, your liver changes it from Delta nine THC to Delta 11 THC and Delta 11 THC is much more hallucinogenic has a much different effect. And that's why when you eat cannabis, you get a stronger effect. It's not because you're absorbing more of the cannabis. It's because it's being metabolized in your body and changed and becoming more potent. And cannabis, there's Delta 8, Delta 9, all different deltas, all different isomers, all different forms. And they all interact with each other as well in complex ways. And there's not only THC, but of course, there's CBD, there's CBG, there's CBN. There's all different variations of all of these molecules. And they all interact in different synergistic ways that we do not understand yet. And so with alcohol, there's one active ingredient, whether it's beer or wine or, or Everclear, the active ingredient is the same. It's always the same molecule. And with cannabis, it's a huge family of molecules. And so I think that, that some of the older cannabis, like you're saying, was probably higher in different cannabinoids or different types of THC or had different ratios that have been bred to that. By people who weren't analyzing the chemicals, they were just looking for a certain effect. Oh, this plant makes me feel better than that plant. Let's plant the seeds from this plant to grow more of that one. And once we started analyzing and THC was discovered, everyone was like, well, here's a scientific thing. My cannabis has got more THC than yours does, so it must be better. That also leads to lab shopping as well. If you're getting your cannabis tested and you send it to two labs, one says you've got 18%, one says you've got 22%. 
well, I want to go, I want to believe the 22% number because that makes my weed look better. And which part of the bud, if you just take off a trichome and analyze that, you're going to get a higher level of THC than analyzing a whole bud that you've ground up or analyzing a bud with a bunch of seeds in it, like we said before. So even what you analyze, what does that THC percentage really mean? Is it of the whole plant or the whole bud or just that little part? So yeah, the cannabinoid profile is something that needs to be explored a lot more thinking that THC THC equals potency is just, as you're saying, not a valid perception. Uh, it's part of the equation, but it's only one part of a much bigger equation that we're just trying to figure out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, any other thoughts on, uh, on this topic? Um, I'm just going to, I want to pull up again, folks, if you're watching the uh, video version of this podcast, the articles on cracked.com and um it's it's wonderful i like i like that it started off as that thread but then it turned into the article and you had this follow-up at the at the bottom um because there's a yeah, lot of good stuff in here more. originally the thread only went back to the seven i found a reference in the in the 70s to somebody talking about stronger marijuana and then as i went further i started following it even goes back to the 50s and the 40s and like i couldn't find anybody in the 20s talking about the more potent cannabis but as soon as prohibition started as soon as we started banning it in the 30s every generation's marijuana is apparently way stronger than the one before. And it's just people scaremongering that the weed you smoked was okay. And now the weed is, is really dangerous and we got to stop it. And it's, it's really just fear mongering, you know, so people have been using cannabis for thousands of years before recorded history. And if it's really, if it were really 67,000 times weaker, just a few generations ago, then why would anybody ever have consumed cannabis to begin with? Like, it just doesn't make any sense at all. People have been getting high on cannabis for thousands of years. Uh, and there's nothing new about that now. Yeah. Um, I just, for folks that are listening and can't see this, I also wanted to, to make sure we discussed this point. I, I thought this point was brilliant. There's different, different methods of analysis uh, that can produce different results and it turns out that the gas chromatography method used for decades to analyze cannabinoid levels can destroy THC. Yeah, absolutely. They weren't really understanding, you know, what cannabis was and how THC worked. And they used this gas chromatography, which I was talking about earlier in terms of our get your drugs tested context. But the gas chromatography, you actually ignite the substance to analyze it. And when you burn THC, it can be destroyed. And so a lot of those earlier results are going to produce lower numbers simply because of the different testing technology that was being used and liquid chromatography now um, will, will contain, will capture more of the THC and give a more accurate result. So the same substance tested in two different ways can produce two different results. And we've got more accurate testing now that might be capturing more of the THC and other cannabinoids than we used to. It is incredibly difficult to, analyze a plant substance and figure out exactly what is in there, uh, you know, retroactively. It's incredibly complicated technology and sophisticated to be able to do that and get an accurate reading. And, um, and so it's just one of the reasons why cannabis is not probably not stronger than it, than it used to be. I'd love to go back and try to smoke some of the stuff in the sixties and fifties and see what they had. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm willing to believe that I think it would have been remarkable and probably very different than what we're using now. And I think maybe more potent in many ways. 
And of course, hash and extracts have been around forever. So even yeah. if the weed was weaker, which I don't think it was, it doesn't really matter because you can make it arbitrarily strong anyway. People have been making red oil and, and, and hash and other things also for thousands of years, really. And so, you know, that's the other part of it is that cannabis, you can make it as arbitrarily strong as you want to or as pure as you want to. And that technology has really been around in different forms for a very long time. Uh, making extracts is not some new thing. Just rubbing the plant and rubbing your hands together is a way of making quite potent hash. Just by rubbing, right. rubbing the hash off the plant. People have been doing that for a very long time and you can make incredibly potent finger hash and hand hash like that. Uh, and so that's, you know, they don't really want to talk about that, but if you want more potent products, you just make more potent products. And also if cannabis is stronger now, that just means you have to use less at a time. Right. So if there is some harm in smoking from other things that might be in there, the tars or something that might cause some harm, I don't know. I don't really think it is, but if that's a concern, then being able to get high off one puff instead of off eight puffs, well, isn't that better then you're ingesting less other things. So, you know, more potent cannabis is not necessarily like a bad or worse cannabis. It can actually be a better experience in that way too. So the argument falls apart in, in many different ways. Yeah. Well, once again, folks, if you're wanting to look it up, if you're not watching right now, the headline of the cracked article is marijuana is 67,200 times stronger than it used to be, according to the media. And it's written by our friend Dana Larson. So thanks for going through that. Uh, that was a really awesome article that I uh, enjoyed um, from you. And I think it's, uh, I want to segue to this topic and then we can start to wrap up um, because I think this topic encapsulates uh, a lot of different things that you've been through and that we're currently going through. So it'll be a little topical for Chillinoy. Um, a few years ago, you did an interview. Um, I can't remember who with who it was right now, but I will paste it in the uh, show notes for folks that want to check it out because while it's an older interview, it's, it's a great interview. And uh, the person that did it was a really good uh, host so wanted to give them a shout out. Sorry, I don't remember your name right now. I'm really high. Um, so <laughs> you were talking about the fact that there, uh, when you guys first legalized, there was a lot of problems because there were limitations on cultivation licenses. Um, you needed political contacts and a lot of capital to even acquire um, a cultivation license. There's also like a lot of, weird uh, like home grow was a weird thing in canada from what i understand um it's, it was like a province by province approach am i right in saying that like yeah each a province. Law and then each province put their own limitations on it and some of them banned mm -hmm. home growing entirely and so there's still a lot of issues there yeah so it sounds like a lot like kind of what we're going through not only as a nation but uh especially in illinois like one of the hottest topics in illinois cannabis right now is the fact that we are um, a, a very limited licensed market. Like we've awarded 40 craft licenses. You know, we legalized uh, in 2020. We've awarded 40 craft licenses, but this whole time, the same 20 operators have been like kind of controlling the market. This is GTI, Cresco, Curaleaf, a um, few big companies that I believe are based in Canada because it allows them to trade on like that exchange or whatever. Um, and it's just, it's a really like controversial or it's a really, uh, it gets people emotional. I think that's the best way to describe it because 
what a lot of people are asking is like, why didn't we have some sort of like something that resembled more of a quote unquote open market, kind of like what we've seen in Oklahoma. I'm not sure if you're familiar um, or, or other states that have like Michigan, for example, up north. They've, they've, there's just so many more stores and cultivation licenses and the cult, like the home cultivation laws are so much more friendly. Um, where is, where does Canada stand on that right now? Like, has there been any progress or is it kind of the same old thing? Is it like limited license? Is it, uh, you still have a lot of problems with the home grow? I thought I read something about like Quebec is maybe challenging something. I, but I can't, I'm not going to pretend to understand Canada. So, so, I mean, the, 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 the anti-cannabis laws are federal, but every level of government, municipal and provincial all sort of have a role to play both in prohibition and in legalization, right? So a city like Vancouver was licensing marijuana dispensaries before they were legal federally because there was just so many and the city decided that we can't stop them. And so they started giving licenses to stores to sell a product that was actually illegal under federal law. So you get things like that where things open up at a certain level while they're closed at another level. But when, when Justin Trudeau legalized marijuana in Canada, leading, by the way, to the biggest drop in arrests in Canadian history, there was about 60,000 people being arrested, not necessarily charged, but being arrested for cannabis possession every year in Canada. And that number, there's still cannabis possession arrests, which there shouldn't be, but they're down to a couple of thousand or a few hundred. It's not 66,000 anymore. The number is, you know, it's down 99%, right? Uh, but there's still a lot of prohibition aspects and a lot of flaws in our legalization. And you, as an activist, you sort of imagine it's very anticlimactic really getting to legalization because you imagine it's going to be a big thing and people are getting out of jail and there's all these, everyone's liberated. And it's really this slow bureaucratic shift, you know, and some things do happen more quickly, but it, a lot of it's very slow. It takes a long time to implement. And then every other level of government starts putting their own prohibition in. So the federal level, they said every Canadian can grow four marijuana plants per household, not per adult, per household. Uh, and you're allowed to have four plants. So, so great. Four is better than none. And I, it, that number hopefully will only go up over time. I can't see it ever going down. But as soon as they put that in, two provinces in Canada, Quebec and Manitoba, both said no homegrown allowed in our province. We're going to ban it here. And other provinces like my province in British Columbia said, well, you can grow your four plants. But if anybody can see those plants from public space, so if you grow them on your front lawn or from a balcony window or something, you can yeah. be charged with a crime and go to jail for a couple of months and get a pretty big multi-thousand dollar, $3,000 fine if somebody can see your marijuana plant. And it's like, well, what does that mean? From a government in BC that also says we shouldn't stigmatize drug users and we got to do harm yeah. reduction, but don't let them see your disgusting marijuana plant and <laughs> you're going to put you in jail. And I don't even know who was lobbying for that, right? And if those kind of things... They don't, not a lot of people have been arrested for public marijuana plants, but there have been cases of people being arrested and charged with, with and having the cops raid their house and cut down their marijuana plant because someone can see it from a public place or something and getting their whole house turned upside down, right? And so those kind of prohibitions. And there's just funny things like it's against the law to drink alcohol in a canoe in Canada or in a boat, right? Well, if you're canoeing, if you get caught drinking alcohol in a canoe, you can get a $500 fine. If you get caught smoking a joint in a canoe, it's a $3,000 fine and you can go to jail for it again. You can't go to, so 
it's not like the end of the world, but it's like, who put these rules in? Why? I mean, I would much rather be in the canoe with the toker than the alcohol drinker, but at least it should be the same penalty. It shouldn't be the one is a fine and the one is thousands of dollars and potential jail time. That is absurd. And so I think there's a lot of areas like that where people, provinces and cities put in their own bylaws. Some cities are allowing marijuana dispensaries. Vancouver, the city that had a hundred unlicensed dispensaries, our, our legal marijuana shop rules are some of the strictest in Canada. We charge $30,000. I mean, they just changed it, but it was, it's now, it's still really huge, but it was $30,000 to open a cannabis shop in Vancouver. Nothing, that's like 10, 15 times higher than any other business license in the city. We have to be twice as far away from a school as a liquor store is. So liquor stores can be within 150 meters of a place where kids gather. Cannabis shops have to be 300 meters away also 300 meters away from other cannabis shops which means the city that was had a hundred cannabis dispensaries that were illegal now only has about 20 legal shops because they just don't they don't want to allow them to be in other places and again I think it should be less strict than alcohol, but at least the same as alcohol is a good starting point and one that I would have been happy with sure. and would have understood, but twice as strict as alcohol, actually, because it's an area, it's actually adding an extra, doubling the distance actually quadruples the area that you can't be in. Right. So it's actually four times stricter in a way. And so in Quebec, in Quebec's the worst. The day that legalization happened, Quebec implemented a law forbidding the sale of any items that promote cannabis or cannabis culture. So although you can wear a shirt with 420 on it in Quebec, you cannot sell that shirt. If you sell a shirt or a sticker or anything that promotes marijuana, that's a crime and you can be charged in Quebec. And it gets, you know, is an image of Bob Marley promoting marijuana. If 420 is not allowed, how about 419? Have you got a minute? Is that allowed? Like mm -hmm. it's a very vague law, which is being challenged, but it's just desperately trying to hold on to prohibition at these other levels. And some cities just don't allow cannabis shops at all. Right. And nobody's making them accept it. So even in Vancouver, Vancouver, or British Columbia, Vancouver allows 20 shops. I complain that's not enough and that we should have a hundred. We've got neighboring cities that have zero and the mayor and the city halls just says, we're not going to allow that in our city. We still hate marijuana. We don't care that it's legal. And they're not really even supposed to do that. City bylaws aren't really supposed to ban things like that's mm -hmm. they're, they're allowed. They have control, but they're not allowed to do that. But the provinces are allowing the cities to do that because they don't want that fight. They say, go argue with the mayor. Don't talk to us. So prohibition and hatred and stigmatization of cannabis users still exists across the country. Some cities and apartment buildings that had allowed tobacco smoking in certain contexts banned it in those same contexts before legalization happened so they could also ban marijuana and not appear inconsistent. So a building that had allowed tobacco for decades suddenly banned tobacco because they didn't want to allow marijuana. And they knew if they said, we're going to ban marijuana, but you can still smoke tobacco, that would be challenged. And there's even mm -hmm. some areas that used to allow tobacco, but we don't want those pot smokers smoking with the tobacco smokers. So we're going to ban it for everybody. And that also is just, you know, absurd and discriminatory. And if you did allow tobacco, you should also allow cannabis. And so, you know, there's a lot of that still happens. So a lot, a lot of work still to be done. 
driving with cannabis in your car, not using it, but just having it in your car and having it be accessible. If an officer suspects that you might have that, they're allowed to search your whole car. And mm -hmm. in Ontario, it's just come out that the police have been using this to go against minorities and other groups they don't like. Oh, we think you might, I can smell a joint. I think you might have some weed in the car. Not that you were smoking. I don't think you're impaired. I just think you might have a joint Someone's got a joint in their pocket and that's enough to get charged and to be searched. And so it, it's, but the good thing is, I think it's only going to get better from now on that we're like the, the weed laws are, they're not going to get more strict. The number of plants isn't going to go under four more provinces. Aren't going to start banning it. We're at a new kind of reset point post legalization. A lot of things have improved. A lot of things still suck, but that I don't think it's ever going to get any worse anymore. And that, that uh, we're going to, the number of plants is only going to go up. The number of stores is only going to increase. Cannabis prices are only going to get lower as things move forward. And so in that way, I am optimistic. Once you're over the hurdle of the federally enforced prohibition, there's still a lot of barriers and a lot of things, but they're, we're going to push through those. And, uh, and it's, it's, easier to be an activist. The stigma around using cannabis is less. Although it's really interesting that a lot of politicians in Canada will pose with alcohol. Justin Trudeau would go to Oktoberfest and crack open the keg and be pouring out beers. The premier of British Columbia will pose with wine, support our wine industry. Even politicians I know that don't really drink alcohol will still pose with it because they want to be the guy you want to drink a beer with. They want to promote the, but, but after legalization, not a single politician in Canada federally or in any of our provinces has come out and said, Hey, support British Columbia marijuana. Here's me at this with a joint that I bought, or here's some weed I bought at the, at the local weed store, support our industry. I only smoke British Columbia weed, you know, they'll do it for wine and alcohol, but it still shows how stigmatizing it is that politicians that I know smoke marijuana that I smoke pot with, they won't come out and talk about it, even though it's legal, they won't say, yeah, I like to use cannabis and it's legal. And, it's just there's still a lot of stigma around being a cannabis user. I can't imagine, you know, we elect a lot of alcoholics to positions of power in Canada. I don't know if we had a politician that said, yeah, I smoke weed every night and I enjoy it. And I'm, you know, it's just what I do. That person getting elected to federal office. I'm not I mean, maybe Canadians are ready for it, but the political parties are not ready to put someone like that forward yet. Uh, and so it just shows in so many ways that there's still so much stigma around cannabis and cannabis use. Uh, never mind a politician that says, yeah, I like microdosing or yeah, I take cocaine once in a while or yeah, I like to use opiates occasionally. Like we're a long way from that, you know, being something. So it's, it's just interesting how, where we're at, but I do think we're only going to get better from now on. Uh, but, oh my God, the, 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 the rules these people put in politicians that I know who smoke pot, I smoke pot with them. And then they put in these stigmatizing rules. No one can see your marijuana plant, So you go to jail. I'm like, where is this coming from? Why are we, why are we doing this? Why can't we get into the spirit of legalization instead of trying to fight it again? You know, we, we get these laws changed federally and then, Everybody else has to start clamping down at their local level. Don't get too excited, you pot smokers. We're still going to you know, keep you on a tight leash. Well, like, you, like you've said in the past, I think uh, you said it much better than I'm probably about to recap it, but it didn't really legalization both in Canada and here in Illinois and other states. It's not really ever began with acknowledging that prohibition itself was the real problem. They still treat cannabis as dangerous, harmful, 
a, a bad substance that needs to be way more tightly regulated than alcohol is. Um, and in Illinois, there's actually an article. I'll see if I can pull it up, but somebody did an investigation and they found that uh, cannabis in Illinois is regulated tighter than opioids, um, which is like, whatever, like, you know, but it's just an interesting, you know, conversation to have because um, if I can, I hope I can pull it up. If not, I'll throw it in the show notes, but it's, it's, uh, it's the idea that you could just throw, you know, like if you're picking up a batch of opioids that you're bringing to a pharmacy, you can just throw it in your front seat. And as long as you have like whatever paperwork, you're good to go. But with cannabis in Illinois, it's got to be in the back of the vehicle inside of an enclosed container. So like you open the back of the van, but it's inside of a locked like container that you have to like unlock. And it's just a really, really crazy situation. Um, one of the attorneys we've had on the show in the past made a really good point. And I almost want to make it into a worksheet or, or a fill in the blank. Yeah. Worksheet. Cause this, this is what prohibitions or prohibitionists are basically using right now. So let's use it with the cultivation um, topic. You can cultivate cannabis because cannabis is not actually bad, but only if you don't let people see it because cannabis is bad. Yeah, exactly. Right? exactly. So here, uh, so here's a, here, let me use the exact same formula for something else that's pretty controversial in Illinois right now. So Illinois, when they legalize cannabis, they announced they announce that they would be expunging convic- convictions. Of course, it's not automatic expungements because why would we make it easy on anybody? You have to apply <laughs> for the expungement. You also have to pass a drug test. Why? Because you can expunge your cannabis case because cannabis is not actually bad, but only if you don't use cannabis because that's bad. Wait, 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 They, they, you have, if you, if you test positive for cannabis use, you can't get your cannabis possession charges or your conviction expunged. From what I understand. Yeah. There's a, there's a That's wild, you know, in Canada, it's the same thing where they, where they said you can get your record expunged, but we're not going to do it for you. And you have to do, and you got to pay a bunch of fees and it's not actually expunged. You get a pardon, but it's still like there. It can still be looked at, but you're Pardoned, and only a few hundred Canadians have apparently gone through this. Of the thousands and thousands of people, they've made it so hard that nobody has bothered. And, and really, for Canadians, the biggest aspect of having a possession conviction is getting into the U.S. That is the, one of the worst things for us. Americans will not let you into the U.S. If you've even admitted to previous cannabis use, it's a crime of moral turpitude, according to customs. It's one of the few things that you're banned for just admitting having done in the past or having evidence of having done. And America, even if you're pardoned in Canada, America doesn't care. The customs don't, they don't go, oh, well, Canada gave you a pardon. We're going to erase it. No, they don't. Fuck that. They don't care about that. They still... It's still on the U.S. records. We share all our records with the U.S. when it comes to this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. so that could be a lifetime ban just for admitting that you've used cannabis in the past or having like an interview. If customs Googles you and they see that you're posed with a joint at a weed rally 15 years ago or something, you can get banned yeah. for life from entering into the U.S. And Canada I think should be lobbying the U S and saying, look, we've legalized it. A lot of American States have legalized it. Why don't you guys let Canadians in? But we don't, I mean, we can't force America to, to, to change how the sure. policy is, but we could certainly push for it and talk about it and try to, you know, acknowledge reality, but probably that will persist long after marijuana is legal in both countries. People with criminal records probably still won't be getting led into the U S even after the U S 
ends cannabis prohibition federally, which hopefully will come sooner rather than later. I think the, these kind of re- this kind of punishments are still going to persist even afterwards. It takes forever to like push through all these things, and everyone likes the power that these laws give them, and so it, it's it's a thing. But yeah, there's definitely a lot of injustice left. And you know, and when it comes to selling cannabis, you were talking about how just these few companies. Are, are monopolizing things and it has opened up more in Canada, but definitely at the beginning, especially you really needed to have political connections. We got so many former Paula, former prime ministers, chiefs of police, the head of the narcotics, RCMP, all these guys who made a career out of passing laws against marijuana, demonizing marijuana users and arresting marijuana users. Many of these folks now became the biggest investors and profiteers off of legal marijuana and totally change their tune. Although often continuing to demonize the cannabis culture and the other cannabis growers saying, yeah, you can't, those guys are all hell's angels. Buy from me. You can trust my weed. I used to be the head of the RCMP and like this, still a lot of that happening. And, and really even I think now, like it's starting to change now, but at the beginning, all the money in the legal cannabis industry was being made in shares and stocks and bullshit and not really in actually providing quality cannabis to a lot of people. And now there's a whole bunch of lawsuits going on in Canada and the U.S., but a lot of these companies are being sued by investors who claim they were misled. They were opening big facilities, which they knew there wasn't really the demand for or that they knew internally that wasn't going to work. But they were telling everybody, look, we're growing and we're going to grow 10 football fields. We've got it all set up. And, you know, if you honestly think that and you make a misjudge the market, it's one thing. But from these lawsuits are claiming that a lot of these folks, they knew it wasn't going to work. A lot of these things have shut down. A lot of it's collapsed. And there's a big in Canada. The last I heard, there was a billion grams of mar- unsold marijuana that these companies are sitting on, uh, which is quite a bit. And that uh, they're overproducing and that it, and there's a lot of challenges. So a lot of these things was about getting in early, getting your connection getting a permit, making, selling, going public, selling a lot of shares and then getting out when the getting's good. And, uh, and so, and I think that's starting to change now that that's happened, but there was a big wealth transfer and a lot of people made a lot of money without actually growing or producing any quality cannabis. I think it is changing more now and we're seeing more smaller scale and more, I think, better products standing out there, but there's still a lot of weird low quality can people buy cannabis and it's it was grown like it was put in that container a year ago and they're buying it now and it's one gram bud sitting in there i don't care how good that bud was a year ago it's going to be crappy now because it's been sitting maybe it's got a little satchel in there and there's so much packaging and plastic you know and yeah. containers to get to this stuff and uh and a lot of those potency regulations on the edibles and, and capsules and things about how strong they can be but it is only going to get better, but they're, 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 that, that's a big flaw too. And the way it was liberated, you know, some areas are trying to make it a social justice kind of thing where the communities or individuals who were harmed by prohibition are able to be at the front of the line. And, you know, that's very challenging to, to implement and to figure out how to make that work. But instead, what has been is that the people with the most political connections uh, and the ones who often are the wealthiest already have been the ones to profiteer. And to me, the economic benefits of cannabis should not be, oh, I can grow this stuff and sell it for $10 a gram and it actually costs a tiny fraction. I can make a ton of money and we can tax the hell out of it. That it should be that 
people who use cannabis can buy it and access it for much lower prices. And that the economic benefit should be that those people then have a lot more money to spend on rent and food, entertainment and other stuff. And that cannabis prices should collapse. And I yeah. sell cannabis for a living. So I have a I have a motivation to not see that happen, but I want to see prices collapse. And they have, you know, when I first started selling cannabis and getting involved in it in BC, a pound of weed was $2,400. That was the price for a good quality. Sometimes a few hundred dollars more, you know, if it's outdoor, maybe 1800 a pound for like, you know, outdoor. So maybe three grand a pound for some really fantastic, but never more than that. 2,400 was normally what I paid. Now it's around $500 a pound in British Columbia for a decent, cannabis, which is still a lot for a pound of an organic substance, still right. a high price, but that's awesome. And a lot of that, not all of that has got to consumers, but yeah, an ounce of weed used to be like 200 bucks was like a good low price for an ounce, 240 when I first started, you know, $10 a gram, $15 for one gram. When I got going in the eight, early, late eighties, early nineties, $15 for a gram on the street, $10 for a gram, a gram for like an eighth or a quarter or so, 70 bucks a quarter, you know, maybe 240, 220 an ounce, maybe 200 an ounce if you're getting a good price. Now ounces are 100 bucks, 80 bucks, and the quality is still there. So I think that is good for consumers. And I think that's a positive thing. And I think the prices should go even lower. And what's one more thing? I know I'm going off on a lot of stuff, no, but uh, about legalization, they talk about how many consumers have gone over to the legal market and it's a majority now, but there's different kinds of cannabis users. There's the most cannabis users, which are mild users, have a few puffs on the weekend, a little bit the same with most, most alcohol drinkers are people who don't drink very much alcohol, just use it once in a while. That's the majority of users. But that's not where the majority of alcohol, the majority of cannabis is being consumed. It's that minority of hardcores that are using the most people like me. I smoke a couple of grams every day, a quarter ounce a day or something. I'm the equivalent of 50 or more part time users or regular users. <laughs> and People like us is who they need to be going into the legal market. And when they look at all the weed being used and the average user, they're missing that out. And people who are heavier users were much more price sensitive. If you're only having a few puffs off a joint, you don't care if that joint costs $10 or $15 or whatever. Right. It doesn't matter. But if you're smoking 10 grams a day, then $10 gram or $15 gram, it's a huge difference to your, to your life. Right. And so we're more price sensitive, more likely to think of ourselves as like, I'm a cannabis user. I'm a pot person, as opposed to being, I'm just a guy who smokes weed once in a while. You sort of think of yourself as part of that. And so we're way hard. We probably have better connections also. So we're way harder to get people like that to get into the legal market. And so that I think is important and that the, the getting the, the connoisseurs or the hardcores to come over, that's the final step. And I don't, I mean, I'm a, I sell cannabis, so I have access to a lot, but I know a lot of people who are heavy cannabis users who do not go into the legal stores because that doesn't meet their needs yet. And, uh, and if they really want to get them in there, uh, it, and I think that the illegal market still has a big role to play in California. I was reading how they're lowering taxes in Los Angeles and other places because the, the, the illegal market is still selling too much weed. And to me, that's important that the, and it acts as a, as a benefit. Ultimately that benefits the legal stores too, because if they get in tax less, they can sell more cannabis. If they want to have that market become legal, they've got to compete with the illegal market with other things that happens too. You know, in Canada, we tax, 
tobacco very heavily. And as a result, there's a lot of tobacco smuggling and there's a pretty thriving illegal tobacco market. And if they were to drop the taxes on tobacco a little bit, the more they drop the taxes on tobacco, the more the illegal tobacco market will go down. And there's a point where you could still tax it, but maybe not quite so heavily and not have tobacco smuggling where it's not profitable anymore. But any substance, if you have a huge tax on it, then there creates a market for prohibition. If we tax cheese at the same ridiculous rates, there'd be a thriving smuggling cheese market, you know? And so taxes, I'm all for taxes. I'm not like a total taxationist theft kind of person, but taxes have got to be reasonable just in a practical way. There becomes a point where your taxes start to become like prohibition. The first alcohol prohibition was really just really big taxes. And so the, the illegal market still has a role to play in this. And, you know, I see people who got into the legal market and are doing things there. And for me, I still feel more comfortable running my unlicensed cannabis dispensary, even though I know my days are numbered that eventually I'm not going to be able to do it anymore. And I maybe I won't be in the legal system, but for me, it's the right place to be still. And I hope that I know some people are like, we want to shut that guy down. He's stealing our customers. And maybe I am, but on the other hand, I'm also, I think, providing a motivation for the legal market to get better and providing a counterpoint, you know, and when the day comes when people don't go to my illegal store anymore because the legal stores are plentiful and their weed is better and cheaper and higher quality and got the seal of approval, then that's the day that maybe I'm not needed and that I've accomplished my goal. But that that's how I look at it anyway. So yeah, there you go. Well, Cheers to that, man. Cheers to that. You said uh, before the show that you're enjoying some coca tea that looks delicious. I want some. It makes me talkative as well, so it's good for interviews. I just keep going off. Yeah, well, besides coca tea, how do you keep yourself from being fatigued? That was a great transition. Uh, while <laughs> while you uh, continue this fight, the reason I'm asking you is you just brought up that, that people that just casually use cannabis or whatever else don't really care. And for you, people like you and I, we get real passionate about it. But then I start, you know, like there's certain segments of this interview that some people would watch. And frankly, they don't care. They, they don't understand the licensing thing. They don't want to home grow. So like, what, how do you um, keep energized of fighting towards your ultimate end goal, which I think is to have a society where drugs are, you know, legal and <laughs> available. Uh, I mean, I think, I think, first of all, I'm lucky that I've got some very good people that work for me and with me. And so, you know, I talk about my cannabis dispensary and get your drugs tested. These are things that I started and that I launched. Uh, and, but I don't really run them on a day-to-day -day basis anymore. I have other people that do that and do a great job at doing that kind of stuff. Even my mushroom dispensary and Coca cafe in that I, I'm not there every day. I founded it. I had the ideas and I got to put it together and created it, but I have a, a great uh, manager and great people that, that make these dreams of mine come true and help me to, to do this so that I could spend more of my time thinking about what the next project is and how to, and doing interviews and being in the media. I've done thousands and thousands of media interviews over the years. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a big cluster and I'm really busy on something, but I've, I've done a lot of that. And I really enjoy talking about these issues and bringing it forward. And, uh, 
And so, and I, I, and it's been fun for me because I'm not, I'm the kind of person that likes different kinds of projects. And so I'm not just doing one thing. This it's all circled around one topic, but I've been able to, to write books. I've been able to start different kinds of businesses. I've been able to work in, in politics and, and run for office and do things like that. I've been able to go on, on tours. I've been able to give away seeds and do, do so it, it's always a new different kind of thing, which has really kept it fresh for me as a, as an activist and as a person and as sort of my my unorthodox career as a rabble rouser and as someone who's fighting against prohibition and somehow manages to make a living out of this kind of ideological crusade. I think I'm really lucky actually to be able to to have lived this kind of life and to being able to do these kind of things. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes you get setbacks and you get afraid or you get worried, but I was going to ask you that. I don't mean to cut you off, but do you, yeah. do you get afraid and worried at night? Yeah, Sometimes <laughs> less, less or so now, you know, I've got a daughter who, who now is buried and living on her own. And when she was living with me or when that, when that I would worry more about being arrested or going to jail, not so much for myself, but that it would be yeah. hard for my family or something. Right. And, uh, but, but, you know, you, I try to take very calculated risks uh, and to be aware of what the worst case scenarios are. But there's been times when I've definitely been afraid or I've seen other friends of mine. You know, I saw Mark go to jail for four years and that was very challenging. Other friends of mine have done time in Canada for, for months at a time or sometimes over a year in jail. And, and, uh, and, you know, some of my psychedelic experiences have also helped me to remove those kind of fears. And I've taken ayahuasca several times and ayahuasca ceremonies. And, you know, that's a whole other, we'd be in another two hours talking about some of this stuff. But I've had experiences where I've had, I've been told like, you're on the right path. Don't be afraid. It's okay. You can, you know, you don't need to be afraid. You're going to be all right. And, and, and those have been true because I've, I've been remarkably lucky. I, I've definitely, I think been clever and taken strategic decisions, but I've also had some times where I've just been very lucky not to be arrested or I've had something happen where I somehow it's worked out in my favor. And I don't try to rely on luck because that's not really the thing, but, but I mean, there's certainly times where I've come close to, to facing much more dire situations. Right. Uh, but, but I've only ever spent one night in jail and that actually was kind of fun, really how it worked out. And I knew when I got out, people were going to congratulate me and all my friends were going to be there and I was going to be in the news and everyone else in that jail with me that night was not having a good time compared to what my situation was. So I didn't really, that didn't really bother me. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, most of the risks now are more financial. They might shut down my shop or they might, you know, arrest me and try to you go to court or something, but I don't really feel that my Liberty is really hard, hugely at stake right now in Canada, the way things are and who I am and my history and that I'm clearly motivated by an ideological, you know, whatever, whether you agree with me or not, I think it's hard to say that I'm just in this to make a lot of money or I'm just whatever, like I'm clearly highly ideologically motivated by what I'm doing. And so I think that kind of gives me a certain amount of protection as well. But yeah, I mean, it's been a long career and there's been times when I've been afraid and, and you kind of get used to it as well, you know, sort of standing down the police sometimes or the authorities in some ways, or just telling the bureaucracy, no, I'm not going to fold. And, and you kind of get more confident as you see what you can accomplish. And you know, I'm not sure if this is going to work this time. It does work. And the next time you're like, oh, well, maybe that'll work again. And then it does. And then third time you're like, well, now I know how to navigate this because I've been through this before in different ways. I've been through it with a seed bank and with a, a cannabis shop. And now mm -hmm. I've got a, a mushroom dispensary and coca tea and things. And they're different, but there's a lot of parallels there. And so, 
you learn it. And, and also I, I live in a city with a lot of people dying every single day from, from drug poisonings. And, and I, my businesses are located right on the edge of, and really inside the downtown East side of Vancouver, which is really the ghetto where all the poor and homeless people are pushed together and kept in a certain area. And it's not, it, it can be quite intense to be in that area and walk through a lot of homeless people, a lot of street action going on, not really necessarily like a violent or dangerous place, but certainly it's difficult to be around some for sometimes and some people. And, uh, and I just see the harm of these laws cause, and I've been doing this for so long and prohibition, the, you know, overdoses and deaths have only gotten worse and worse and worse. And it's because of this drug war. So I, I feel for that. And I feel that I'm just, in many ways, I've led a very privileged life and I've had a lot of advantages given to me. And I feel this is a way for me to kind of give back. There's a lot of causes out there and a lot of things, but for me, the war on drugs is like a linchpin behind so many other bad things that happen, whether it's mass incarceration, loss of civil liberties, global conflict and warfare, destabilization of governments, uh, uh, you know, pharmaceutical and corporate control over people's choices, environmental damage and degradation. Ending the war on drugs isn't going to fix all those things, but it's going to make all those things way better. It's a key thing that is behind so many other problems. And I feel that it's if we can just unscrew that one thing, a lot of a lot of good things are going to happen. It can happen. And it's a really slow process. And I'm not sure I'm going to be alive to see all the end of that. But I'd love to see at least the beginnings of the end of the war on drugs. And that and that I think marijuana legalization and psychedelics are two big things. But it's more than that. Ultimately, we got to we got to see beyond those things. But getting those things out of the war on drugs and accepting them is a big part of it. And then we got to understand coca leaf and coca. We got to understand opium poppies and that these are also things. But but to me, I guess it's just a real linchpin. And it's something that I that I you know thought as a younger person, this can be kind of a fun path and also one that's very important and one that I can. I, can, I think I can enjoy working on this. There's a lot of fun things about being a cannabis activist. You get to smoke a lot of weed and go to events and you get to help a lot of people in beneficial ways. And so to me, it's a win-win, you know, running these kind of businesses, being able to make a living doing what I do, being able to give back to my community, to being able to see on a daily basis, the benefits that these kind of actions have. People come to me all the time and thank me for helping them get access to cannabis. I get emails from my customers thanking me for access to microdoses and often giving very personal and powerful stories about how this has changed their life. And it's not me. It's just me knowing that this substance can help people and, and being in a position to make it available to them. You know, I, it's the plants and the medicine that does the work, but if I can be a conduit for that, uh, it, it's really meaningful to me and helpful to me. So I'm just, I'm, yeah, I find I'm very ideological about this and it's been a lot of fun and I, and I've met a lot of other people who also believe the same things and that's why I do what I do. And I hope to keep doing it for, you know, a few more decades anyways, and to, uh, to see this, to see this through. And really the next phase is opening some kind of opiate dispensary or heroin buyers club or something like that. And whether it's me or someone else in our city that does it, I'd love to be a part of that and to continue pushing things forward. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. Well, I would, I would love to have you back on sometime to talk about that and, and other things we weren't able to get into today, including ayahuasca, DMT, um, your net, your next initiative that you just mentioned and more. 
Yeah, at the but, beginning, you said we'll go for one to two hours, and I knew it was going to be two hours because I always, I mean, I talk a lot. I got a lot to say, and there's a lot of projects. And, yeah, there's quite a few things we still didn't even get to, but I, it's been a really good conversation, and I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I, I likewise, it's been everything and more that, that I thought it would be. Um, and so uh, thank you so much for your time today in the spirit of just keeping my word. Uh, we'll cut it off at two. Um, but folks, I've got it displayed on uh, the video right now. Uh, we'll have it in the podcast description. Go to DanaLarson.com uh, to learn more about Dana and everything that he's doing. Um, it looks like you, have, you got your social media on here and everything. It's at Dana Larson, basically. Yeah, on I tweet right? a lot. I actually almost got a 30 day. I get banned on Facebook fairly often. And I actually got Saw a 30 day ban for posting just the other day. And then they reversed it and put me back on. And so that was nice, but I tweet quite a bit. So follow me on Twitter. If you're on there. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So once again, Dana, so appreciative of your time and folks, he's got a lot of other columns, uh, that are up. And in case you were wondering, uh, you know, why it said masturbation on one of my tabs. Masturbation. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it's an article that you wrote in 2020 masturbation panic and the war on drugs. And I folks check it out. There's a lot of other interesting articles on Dana Larson.com. Um, and like he said, follow him on Twitter for a lot of, uh, interesting musings and, and good content. <laughs> It was so. a huge masturbation panic in the 1800s. People were getting arrested and be put in jail and told they were crazy because their parents would catch them jerking off. And I find that's parallel to like parents freaking out and putting their kids in treatment because they find some roaches in their bedroom or something. And people don't realize how for like a hundred years, our society was obsessed with the idea that masturbating is going to drive you crazy and kill you. And now maybe it's something you don't do in public and maybe it's something that we giggle about, but we don't think it drives drives you insane and we don't you know we recognize it's just kind of a normal thing that maybe there's a time and a place for it but it's not uh it's not a sign of mental illness or or a cause of mental illness and it yeah so that was that article's talking about yeah it's kind of like a the slope it's like the slope of uh this is your brain on drugs to you know how we're starting to treat cannabis now to masturbation is going to make you go blind to like you say we're giggling about it now yeah you know, yeah it was like, a very widespread cultural belief that went on for generations i mean people lived and died under this under this whole idea that if they ever touched their own genitals it could lead to all kinds of terrible things happening you know and they're missing out. They were missing out for all that time. Who knew it's actually, you know, kind of fun and not uh, very harmful at all. Yeah. God bless those it's people. It's the safest kind of nothing. I'm, you know, but whatever. Anyways, it's a, uh, it's a fun <laughs> parallel, but it's always something to giggle about. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Uh, folks, I hope you found this podcast as fun as I did. Um, cheers. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Chillinoy podcast.